Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. Today's selection of floetry is entitled, In Remembrance of Farid Uddin Attar. May God be pleased with him. O oh, those who have been consuming the fruit of life while neglecting the deeper root, this is like the false dawn that captures one's vision leading one to believe the sun is close to rising when this is not so. We have become immersed in games of no worth, where we dream of scoring winning goals and forget truths about losing our souls. Like children, we chase after bubbles that litter but elude our grasp or burst flat, with emptiness when caressed by our touch. Soon we will lie down at death's door with such regret, sensing that we've been chasing wind as we leave the world behind and begin the real life, knowing we have not prepared for what may come, but spend our time ensnared with worldly affairs made of vanity, we carouse markets of inanity and insanity, squandering our life's potential while playing the ego's fight. The world is a hydra that must be fed, yet no matter how much we give each head, what it desires there are still further cries, insisting on more unsatisfied sighs, like a greedy rich fool who prays to God to increase wealth and does not find this odd. Remember Pharaoh, whose claims were so bold, or Karun, whose heart was obsessed with gold? History is elusive, like blowing sand that buries memories of knowing. The world is a prostitute who is dressed with a lure to trigger the body's quest, to embrace the attraction with clothes hide, if we will just throw discretion aside. Or perhaps we will be seduced by lust for worldly glories to be found in the store of rich and powerful sultans or kings, hypnotized by the illusion of things, where banners of fortune change with the wind, hoisted on ropes woven from finest sin. The temptations of this life are the threads through which a worldly kind of a spider spreads. Sticky filaments on the path that trap heedless humans and suck from them the sap of purpose and leave their carcass to rot on flimsy strings of desire that have brought them each to an unfashionable end where they'll have nothing of value to send on to offer the master with the broom who's ready to sweep corpses 
from the room. All of the things that we have sought and thought are creations of the divine and not our own. God made the atoms that rebelled and then to the truth would become impelled. From God come stories of sin, contrition, retribution owed, and the condition of forgiveness. God is the seeker, way, and knowledge, masked by the struggle of clay. The triumph that you believe to be your arrival is not but God at God's door. We're but Cain on a mirror from which we are able to reflect divinity. So lost atoms may regain the wisdom to unite with the light of God's prism. The title of the following story is Crisis. The president was woken in the early hours of the morning. Something which couldn't wait until the noon briefing must be serious indeed. She had been taken to the situation room without comment, and there waiting for her were the Joint Chiefs of Staff, her National Security Advisor, the Directors of the CIA and FBI, the Head of the National Security Association, her Chief of Staff, the Press Secretary, most of the Cabinet members, and a few individuals whom she didn't recognize right away, but whom presumably had the appropriate security clearance. As she entered the room, everyone stood and said in unison, Good morning, Madam President. She acknowledged their salutations with a nod of her head and took the seat at the head of the large table. Be seated, ladies and gentlemen, the President said. She poured herself some coffee from the urn in front of her, took a sip of help clear the cobwebs of sleep and asked, All right, what's going on? Her eyes took a quick tour around the table, and she seemed to encounter nothing but puzzled looks until she reached her chief of staff, who had his game face on. She reversed her tour just to confirm her impression that everyone else was as much in the dark as she was, and then came back to her chief of staff. With an air of impatience, she said, well, as her gaze settled on her chief of staff, he shifted in his seat, obviously uncomfortable with what he was about to say. We've got a real crisis on our hands, he replied. He followed up his opening salvo with, I've taken the liberty of calling all of you here because something has come to my attention that just couldn't wait until the scheduled noon briefing. The Middle East again, the president asked with a sense of urgency. Her chief of staff shook his head in the negative. She paused for a moment, gulped, and inquired, Has there been a terrorist incident of some kind? Her chief of staff responded with, It's too early to tell whether there is a terrorist angle to this. That possibility is being explored as we speak. He looked at the president in a grim manner and managed to stammer, There, there, there has been a series of verified outbreaks of happiness recorded in a number of states over the last 24 hours. In particular, an anecdotal accounts of such outbreaks have been surfacing over the last six months. The head of the Center for Disease Control said with a note of alarm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear what you said. There has been an inexplicable series of what kind of outbreaks? Happiness, the chief of staff said through clenched teeth. 
one of the members of the Joint Chiefs exploded with, What kind of an idiot are you, getting us all up in the middle of the night, wasting our time with some nonsense about happiness outbreaks? The President's Chief of Staff bristled and shot back. You military types lack both imagination and an understanding of how this country works. She was about to go on when the President put her hand up and said in an imploring voice, Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. She turned to her Chief of Staff and said, Bob, we've been friends for a long time and I have never known you to be frivolous or an alarmist, but I think I can speak for most of us around this table when, how shall I say this, well, happiness is not usually the sort of issue which brings us to the Situation Room. With concern in her eyes for her longtime friend, she said, Are you feeling okay? Her chief of staff sighed, I know what I am saying sounds crazy, but let me try to fill you in on some of what has been happening. He motioned to one of the aides, and a map of North America became visible. There were a number of small red circles on the map positioned in various geographical regions. The red circles, he began, designate areas where outbreaks of of, he took a deep breath and continued, of a strange kind of happiness have been reported during the last half year. The concentrated circle of red here, and he pointed to the map, marked the incident which has been documented within the last day. He was about to go on when the voice of the Attorney General broke in. Sorry to interrupt, Bob, but I seem to recall that pursuit of happiness was one of the truths which were considered to be self-evident in the Declaration of Independence. And while off the top of my head I do not recall any specific mention of happiness that appears in the Constitution, nonetheless many commentators believe that the idea of happiness is quite consistent with the principle of promoting the general welfare that appears in the prologue to our Constitution. I don't see the problem. Believe me, Mr. Attorney General, said the Chief of Staff, I feel fairly confident that the composers of the Declaration of Independence as well as the framers of the Constitution, likely would have found the kind of happiness that recently we have begun to place under surveillance to be far too starry-eyed for even their idealistic taste. In fact, perhaps the whole exercise of constructing a Constitution might have been considered irrelevant if the kind of happiness which I am referring to were a common phenomenon back then. He nodded to the same aid as before and the map of North America was replaced with a huge picture of a man who was obviously extremely happy. The Chief of Staff winced somewhat as he looked at the picture. The condition seemed so alien and unnatural. Bob went on with his presentation. He braced himself and looked at the photo again before quickly looking away in pain. We believe this man may be our zero vector for the infectious outbreak of happiness. Although the entire scenario has become complicated somewhat, because there seem to be strong indications that multiple, apparently independently sourced vectors may be involved in this phenomenon. As he said this, other photos appeared on the screen, consisting of both men and women. All of the individuals depicted in the photos seemed to be in the throes of some consuming sort of ecstasy. The looks on the faces of the people seated at the table suggested that no sane, rational person would dare to hazard even a wild guess as to how such a condition was possible. The gasp with which the photos had been greeted appeared to confirm the Chief of Staff's suspicion that the collective experience and expertise of the individuals gathered at the meeting 
were being confronted with something totally foreign and unknown to them. While continuing to speak, he turned over a few sheets in the dossier before him. At this point, I'm afraid we don't have very much biographical information on the first individual you were shown, or for that fact, on any of the people you see on the screen, other than that they seem to be people of mystery and secrecy, and these factors in and of themselves make them individuals, people of interest to our investigation. We've heard rumors that they like to stay out of the limelight for reasons of humility, but we believe this facade of humility may hide much more sinister intentions and ambitions. He looked up from the folder before him, surveyed the people at the table, and then spoke to the president. What I can say is this. Oftentimes, when secondary vectors, uh, uh, people, come into contact with these figures of mystery, the former individuals seem to become infected with some sort of deep-rooted sense of peace, contentment, intense happiness, and as well, and here an ominous note crept into his voice, they begin to change in troubling ways. The director of the FBI spoke, Bob, from our perspective at the Bureau, we would assume that peaceful, content, happy people would make good law-abiding citizens and therefore should help crime statistics to decline. What's the troubling part of all of this? Nodding in partial agreement with the FBI director, the chief of staff replied, Under normal circumstances, I would tend to agree with you, Jim. And I must admit that these people do appear, as far as we've been able to determine, to be obeying the law. But what is bothersome about all of this is that those who are infected seem to lose interest in careers, money, economics, possessions, and politics. I mean, even though they usually have jobs, pay their bills, and so on, their commitment to the former items seem to be very superficial. One of the president's economic advisors spoke at this point. I think I see where you might be going with all this, Bob. Many studies have shown that much of our national economy is dependent on people who spend money in an attempt to pick up their depressed spirits or to allay a sense of existential restlessness or out of boredom concerning life or to enhance their social standing or to acquire power or because they want what they want when they want it or to attract the opposite sex. Bob pointed a finger at the economic advisor, smiled and said, Bingo! As he nodded in appreciation towards the man who had just spoken, the chief of staff said, If you will permit me to complete the picture that you have begun to draw, Eric, our concern is this, Madam President. If the sort of happiness about which I am informing you begins to spread, well, our gross domestic product is likely to take a big hit. People who are content and happy with life are not the kind of people we can depend on year after year to go on buying and spending money. If this outbreak of happiness is not contained right away, we could be talking about an extended recession, maybe even a major depression, in just a few months, perhaps only weeks. As Bob words began to sink in, the member of the Joint Chief of Staffs, who had spoken earlier, said, I'm sorry, Bob, for my earlier hasty judgment, and I hope you will take into account the sort of stress we have been operating under over at the Pentagon, and accept my apology for my previous remarks. Bob shook his head in a manner which indicated no problem, and said, It's perfectly okay. I do understand. 
The general acknowledged the acceptance of his apology with a wave of his hand and continued, I do grasp the serious implications for our country in relation to what you are saying, Bob, but has anyone considered the possibility that there is an upside to this as well? I mean, if we could study this phenomenon and master it, we might be able to use this happiness contagion to destabilize the economies of countries that are unfriendly to us. This could be a lot more effective in softening up an enemy than the deployment of any number of armed divisions could be, not to mention the lives of our men and women in uniform such a strategy might save. A political advisor to the president joined in the discussion at this juncture. I don't know about the viability of the general's suggestion, although I'm sure we could earmark an extra billion or so for increased defense spending in the next budget so that we might explore some of these possibilities, but I have a more immediate and practical concern. Content, happy people are not likely to be interested in making sure they get a piece of the financial material pie which the government controls, and therefore if this happiness outbreak were to become an epidemic, we would be looking at a substantial shortfall in future campaign contributions. Shaking a finger at the people sitting around the table, he added, Ladies and gentlemen, I don't need to spell out for you what that might mean for all of our careers in public service. People who do not depend on their government representatives for pork barrel kickbacks or for political favors or for help in being happy or for making sure that things are run in accordance with their biases and prejudice, well, why would these people want to give us any campaign money? Grunts and groans of agreement were heard around the table. This was a real crisis. The Secretary of Defense said, Madam President, should we raise the DEFCON level in response to this situation? The President reflected on the Defense Secretary's suggestion and remarked, Let's hold off on that for the moment, Mr. Secretary. Before making that call, I would like to hear from some of the other people around the table. She looked over at the head of the FEMA and said, Dorothy, do you have anything to add to the discussion? The person in charge of the Federal Emergency Management Agency thought for a moment, trying to collect herself. She began with, As you might expect, Madam President, a happiness epidemic is not something for which we have drawn up any contingency plans. I'm sorry to say that we may have dropped the ball on this one. She paused for a moment and then, turning to the chief of staff, she asked, Do we have any hazmat data on this? Has anyone tested the water in these affected regions for contaminants, or have there been any spills of hazardous waste which might account for this anomalous happiness behavior? Maybe what we are dealing with here is a new, very subtle form of bioterrorism. Didn't you allude to something of this sort when you first began laying this thing out for us, Bob? Chief of Staff shook his head affirmatively. Yes, that's right, Dorothy. We have managed to place some undercover people in a few of the affected areas. And while the early reports indicate that something strange is going on, unfortunately, several of these agents have gone native on us and have resigned their positions. Apparently, peace, contentment, and happiness have become more important to them than being patriotic in observing their duty. Bob leaned back and looked towards the far end of his side of the table. He said, I believe the NSA has been involved in the investigation of the situation, so perhaps Dr. Davis, as acting director, you could shed some light on this matter. Dr. Davis started slowly. Well, there is much I cannot say at the present time because 
Not everyone in the room has sufficient security clearance for a complete briefing to be given, but a full report is being prepared for the President. However, I can say the following. In conjunction with the National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, and the Center for Disease Control, we have done an extensive battery of biological and mental testing, including an array of tuck screens in relation to this phenomenon, and quite frankly, we are stumped. If there is an infectious agent involved, it doesn't appear to be airborne, at least not down to a micron level, which would encompass such entities as viruses or even prions. Nor does this vector force appear to get transmitted through physical contact. But apparently association of some kind does appear to play a major causative role, although as of yet, we still haven't been able to figure out the epidemiology of this process. We may be dealing with a form of matter which is even more exotic than the so-called dark matter about which the astrophysicist community is so befuddled. In the meantime, we have put together an elite group of mathematicians and quantum physicists to develop models which may be able to account for what we are seeing. But I don't see a breakthrough coming out of this work anytime soon. Hell, we don't even know what quantum theory has to do with general relativity, let alone consciousness, intelligence, creativity, choice, or or happiness. Alternatively, some of our investigations have been moving in the direction of several further possibilities involving either brainwashing or maybe the adverse after-effects of some form of sensory deprivation program which is inducing an artificial and pathological happiness in those people who are being subjected to such a process. We are pursuing a number of hypotheses in this regard, but at this point we are really not ready to make any final recommendations. Finally, our cryptologists have been studying some documents which have been found at or near the epicenter of these possible contagious outbreaks. We feel fairly certain there is an elaborate system of code which is somehow connected to this whole thing, possibly part of a psychological environment which might induce an unusual state of suggestibility. In any event, Using an algorithm consisting of certain prime numbers, we have been able to establish the presence of a variety of keywords and phrases, such as love, friendship, kindness, generosity, forgiveness, patience, compassion, empathy, honesty, sincerity, self-realization, the essential self, and so on, in the documents we have found. But so far, we don't know how all of these pieces of the puzzle fit together. The director of the NSA looked around the table somewhat wearily and concluded with, This is all I can say under the circumstances, Madam President. I'm sure you understand the reasons for my reticence. The president's face remained impassive and inscrutable as she listened to the director of the NSA. When he had finished, she said, generally to the people assembled, Anything else I should consider? Her press secretary said, Madam President, already I'm coming under some aggressive questioning from a number of nationally recognized correspondents and columnists. Somehow, they have caught wind of the fact that something is going on in relation to a wave of happiness, peace and contentment, that seems to be sweeping selected, though currently restricted, areas of the country, and that this phenomenon, whatever its nature, appears to carry ramifications for the economy, national security, and the political stability of the country. I don't know how much longer I can keep them at bay. I think we need a cover story of some sort. Maybe we could float the idea of a chemical spill which causes hallucinations and manic behavior. 
the head of the Environmental Protection Agency chimed in with, No, I don't think that's a good idea. We would have the environmentalists all over us wanting to know why we hadn't taken precautions to protect the public from such toxic chemicals. Moreover, they would want specific information on the chemical nature of the compound and who was manufacturing it and why. As they were all thinking about the exchange between the head of the EPA and the press secretary, one of the people near the end of the table, opposite the president, raised her hand for recognition. When the president encouraged her to speak, she said, My name is Dr. Janice Holt. I am with the National Institute of Health. I do research in neurobiochemistry with special emphasis on the role which various neurotransmitters play in mental disorders. With respect to the press secretary's concerns for a cover story, why don't we just say, for the time being, that there is a newly discovered mental aberration which may be due to some sort of genetically transmitted problem affecting the formation of neurotransmitters in the frontal cortex of the brain, and we are studying the problem. We could say that the happiness outbreak appears to be related to certain kinds of bipolar disorders but requires further study. Such an announcement will buy you time, Madam President, until you know what you are dealing with. Maybe their press secretary could make an announcement concerning the formation of some foundation that is seeking to protect the mental health of the general public, and the announcement about the foundation is being used to simultaneously publicize the president's concern with the happiness outbreak issue. When the women from the NIH was done, one of the president's political advisors said, I like this idea. It is proactive. It puts you, Madam President, in a good light as a caring occupant of the Oval Office. It gives us plausible deniability because no one in the public knows squat about neurobiochemistry anyway, and therefore they will have a hard time poking holes in what we are claiming. Maybe we could bring some people in from the pharmaceutical industry to participate in the studies conducted through the proposed foundation and thereby pay back a few political IOUs. It seems like a win-win-win situation, Madam President. Furthermore, added the Chief of Staff, if any of this happiness outbreak begins to spread in an alarming fashion or becomes too problematic, we can always hospitalize these individuals who are in the throes of too much peace, contentment, and happiness in order to protect them against themselves, as well as to promote the general welfare of the public, which, nodding to the Attorney General, as you have pointed out, is entirely constitutional, so we will be able to keep the civil liberties people off our backs. The President smiled agreeably with the way things were working out. She looked towards the Secretary of Defense and said, We will maintain our present DEFCON status, but let's get everybody to follow through on this. The Press Secretary can get together with Dr. Holt from the NIH, as well as the heads from both the Center for Disease Control and FEMA to work out the details of the press release. In addition, Bob, why don't you get together with some of the economic advisors and see if we can't figure out how to hide the money for all of this in an obscure line item for an upcoming bill that is likely to get passage through the House and Senate. The President thought for a moment more to see if there was anything she had missed and then proclaimed, The code name for our collective efforts to deal with these inexplicable outbreaks of happiness will be mysticism. Finally, she stood up saying, Thanks, Bob, for organizing this, and I agree. If people begin to become as happy as the case studies about which you have briefed us, or if the general populace even begins to suspect there is such a reality, we will have a huge set of political and economic problems on our hands that we may not be able to control, so we are going to need to be very vigilant about this issue. She thanked everyone who attended the meeting and left the room. 
People everywhere would be able to sleep better as a result of political activities this morning. The title of this week's musical interlude is Contemplation. past is just a memory, and the future is but a possibility. How imperceptibly the present fades into what will never be again, as it becomes immersed in the mists of not-yet-realized possibilities. You are listening to the transitory, fleeting, perishable, fragment-filled remnants of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. The following contemplative essay explores the issue of idols.
Normally speaking, when the term idol is used, we tend to think of naturally occurring objects or crafted artifacts. Furthermore, to qualify as an idol, these objects and or artifacts should be treated by the idol worshippers as gods or goddesses to which the individual directs his or her worship, praise, and supplication. From the perspective of practitioners of the Sufi path, the worship of idols constitutes a fundamental spiritual error. The nature of the error may vary from case to case. For example, idol worship often involves a confusion of a surface manifestation with the source and creator of that manifestation. The surface manifestation may be a sign, in some sense, of the presence of divinity, for nothing can exist without having a relationship with divinity. However, the surface manifestation is just that, a manifestation. It is not, in essence, the essence of divinity. A second kind of error often surrounding idol worship is the following. The infinite, unlimited, lasting, uncreated, non-physical, incorruptible, and formless nature of divinity is collapsed and reduced to the finite, limited, ephemeral, created, physical, and corruptible, concrete form of an idol of whatever description. Thirdly, idol worship tends to impose a purely conceptual or theoretical network of meanings onto the nature of divinity. This network of meanings or interpretations distort and obscure the true reality of God's presence. As a result, people are led not to God but away from divinity, although they may believe this is not the case. Fourthly, Idol worship involves an ascribing of partners to God. In effect, the idol worshiper has isolated some particular form of manifestation from the underlying unity of divinity. In addition, the idol worshiper claims such an aspect has in and of itself the capacity to help or hurt us. The Sufi masters indicate only God has the ability to affect us. Yet God may choose different modalities of divine names and attributes to bring about such effects. The foregoing four characteristics of idol worship have extensive ramifications concerning the way many of us live our lives. In fact, according to Sufi masters, idol worship may be far more pervasive, entrenched, and insidiously entangled in our lives than we might like to think is the case. Idols need not be restricted to naturally occurring objects such as the sun, the moon, fire, water, and so on. Moreover, idols may not just be a matter of some sort of, say, stone artifact which has been fashioned by human hands. Our desires, opinions, ideas, values, and beliefs can be idols to which we bow down in adulation and worship. The pursuit of physical pleasure also can constitute an idol as can the pursuit of power, status, fame, money, material possessions, and fashion. Political systems, ideologies, science, philosophy, literature, art, and culture can also constitute idols. The raising of athletic, political, business, artistic, scientific, or academic figures to positions of praise is to forget who is the one really responsible for whatever good or benefit may be coming through a given locus of manifestation. Every religion and mysticism 
can become nothing more than idol systems. Heaven, spiritual states, guides, mystical insights, divine gifts, gnosis, and teachings can all be calcified into idols to be worshipped, praised, and loved in and of themselves and quite independently of God. To be preoccupied with, focused on, striving for, committed to, or desirous of, other than the pleasure of God, is to be engaged in a form of idol worship. Consequently, if one worships God out of a fear of hell or a desire for paradise, one may be engaged in idol worship. Alternatively, if one worships God out of a desire for miraculous favors or strange experiences or spiritual elevation or mystical unveilings, then one is pursuing a form of idol worship also. Moreover, if one worships God out of a desire for worldly success of whatever kind, then one is caught up in a form of idol worship. The common thread running through all of these potential forms of idol worship is the manner in which loving, serving, and obeying God does not play the central role in one's intentions and motivations. God really has been reduced to being a means to an end which serves the desires of the ego. The individual is worshipping God for what God is going to do for him or her. In the foregoing circumstances, the individual actually is bowing down only to his or her own concept of God. The worship and praise are all directed towards the projections of the false self. We have a tendency to interpret the spiritual activities of our lives as due to our doing and causing and accomplishing and achieving. Prayers, for example, are said, and our ego immediately exercise its inclination to appropriate these actions as its own. Prayers are given expression through being, consciousness, will, hearing, seeing, and speech, none of which belongs to us. These qualities are manifestations of various names and attributes of God. In claiming prayers as our own, we are maintaining we are the cause of those prayers. Furthermore, we are contending our prayers are the reason why benefit comes to us in this world and or the next life. In effect, in both instances, we are ascribing partners to God. According to the masters of the Sufi way, fasting, night vigils, prayers, seclusion, remembrance, association, and so on, are of value only if they are rooted in an intentional framework seeking detachment from the false self, the world, expectation, reward, and personal accomplishment. Indeed, one of the fundamental values of the aforementioned practices is that, God willing, they bring about such detachment if engaged with sincerity. Spiritual practices of any kind, whether exoteric or esoteric, are of essential value only if they are expressions of a desire for complete submission to and love of God, as ends in themselves. In fact, the essential value of spiritual practice of whatever kind is to help us to realize what is involved in submitting ourselves to and having love for God to the full extent of our spiritual capacity. If our intentions are shaped and colored by the false self, then we run a serious risk of sliding into idol worship of one description or another. 
Unfortunately, the hydra-like properties of the ego are such that very few, if any, of our intentions are not being seduced towards a slippery slope which leads to idol worship. Only the mercy of God prevents this from happening. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.